0: Good evening, all, and thanks for bearing the rain. Sorry that it's really loud. I me adjust that. We have the exciting task in week 19 of trying to finish the Gospel of Matthew. We'll begin in chapter 11. We didn't finish this morning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll just try to speed up. I just dallied, um, But we're on page 136 for our opening prayer. Be good to me, your servant, so that I may live and obey your teachings. Open my eyes so that I may see the wonderful truths in your law. I am here on earth for just a little while. Do not hide your commands from me. Amen. Okay, so it's been two weeks, but if perhaps we should just pick back up, pick up right where we left off, if that seems okay. Uh, with Jesus saying some really popular things. <laughs> Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth, but the sword. I have turned, he starts to quote the prophet, I have turned to, to turn a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Again, this is not a way to win friends and influence people. <laughs> um, Helpful to reflect on this passage, perhaps, uh, about what it might mean. There's always, I think, two choices when we read Scripture. There's probably more than two, but but two kind of fundamental differences that we don't always perceive. One is that Scripture is prescribing something, telling us what to do. Uh, The other is that Scripture is describing what we already do. To think through, a lot of the difficulty that we had in the Hebrew Bible was reading stories prescriptively. Be like Abraham. <laughs> That's problematic if you have children. Um, however, to read the story as describing ways that we, that we act, in some ways prescribes behavior very different from the story itself. I don't know if that makes sense. One way is copy the story, the other is do the opposite of the story. (laughs) Now, this thing that Jesus describes about bringing division instead of peace, you sort of have to ask yourself, is, is that God's goal? Is that what God wants for us? Or is that instead the way we often live? The way we often function? So, you may not have families divided by spirituality i do (laughs) i do um (coughs) yeah and sometimes uh it's a personality defect sometimes we um some of us like to be rebels you know with or without a cause and religion can get tied into that um but but this is often uh, how we can find ourselves i think the question is whether Jesus is really wanting this for us or if, in fact, he's, he's challenging whether or not we really have to be divided as families because we have different, different outcomes in mind. Does that make sense? I, I sort of see this actually as a story of the Episcopal Church a little bit, too, i mean I, I I would just share with you, I have friends who are women who discerned to call the ministry, and their parents not disowned them because that doesn't really happen anymore, but that was just sort of a cut off from the family you, you, you know uh, and and they did do it at extreme cost to themselves and I wonder if we 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 have to break a family because we disagree. you know I r- actually think this is something really worth pondering um Obviously, the Episcopal Church has had some recent trouble, women's ordination being one issue, but but obviously, gay bishop Jean Robinson being another issue. And whether you agree or not, w- how do you have to behave with a sword, with a sword, or with ability to, to hold together? I mean, that this is a tough a tough, tough text that it could apply at a lot of levels, I think. Th- the thing that Jesus follows up this with, right, is, take up your cross and follow me. <laughs> Um, which we have come to mean, um, well, it could mean most anything to us. It could mean something like, well, I said hello to somebody, and they didn't say hello back. I'll just take up my cross and keep being nice. I promise you this is not what Jesus had in mind. (laughs) So I I don't want to short-circuit chapter 27, but I think it's probably important to talk about crucifixion just for a bit because we, we have some real misnomers on it. So, so I know I'm jumping ahead of Jesus being crucified, but here's an image. I, this is not a popular image. N- nobody would say, take up your cross and follow me, because the cross is a capital crime imposed only by the Roman government, so no Jewish person can impose it, imposed by the, the Roman government only on poor people for the crime of only sedition or treason. If you steal, you lose your thumb or your hand. But you do not get crucified for stealing. When you hear that there are two bandits on either side of Jesus, that's a poor translation of the word. There are two insurrectionists. Rich insurrectionists have their heads cut off. They're allowed to die quickly and with dignity. The cross is actually um, sort of a billboard in the ancient world which didn't have billboards. Remember that in walled cities, most people live outside of the city, not in, although the marketplace is in the city. So people come into the city during the day and they go out to their farm community. And um, there's only probably four gates in even a large city, maybe five. And the primary gate, outside the primary gate would be the location of crosses. And I mean, right outside of the gate so that everybody going in the city and everybody coming out sees the cross which they know is reserved for people who are suspected of or practice insurrection or treason. Um, <coughs> Cross is an extremely cruel form of punishment that is adopted from the Persians. So the Romans didn't invent it, but they did sort of titrate it to, to, to be, well, f- frankly, awful. Um, <coughs> we have a lot of misconceptions from art and movies about how this worked. The first one is that the cross was shaped like a lowercase t that is patently false, and no one ever carried the whole thing. It would have been much too heavy. So crosses are either shaped like an X, that's the Persian cross and the St. Andrew's cross, or they're shaped like capital T. Um, this cross would be permanent in the ground. So you would think about how in a middle e- me- medieval town there would be a gallows in the city square that would always be there, just in case. <laughs> That's that one. Uh, This one um, is the one Jesus is likely referring to when he says, carry your cross. The upright post would be like a telephone pole permanently in the ground. Remember, wood is scarce. They don't have enough to just build these things all the time. So there's an upright post, likely with a notch in it, although you don't really need a notch. And the the person to be crucified carries really like a two-by-four, like a three-foot-long two-by-four that is fitted into the notch people that are crucified at eye level. This is our biggest misnomer. Crosses are not way up in the air. It's possible you've seen movies in which Jesus is tied to a cross and then they drop it down into a hole. Anybody ever seen that in a movie? It would rip your arms off. This <laughs> biomechanically not possible. Beyond that, it would be a lot of work for the soldiers. So their goal is to do less work. To put somebody on a cross, you can tie them to a two-by-four and just... Two people just sort of set it in a notch and you're done. Does, does that make sense? You might be thinking, Mike, if it's at eye level, some people are taller than others. Their feet could touch the ground. Well, you just twist their legs. So people aren't crucified like this. They're crucified however the soldiers would like to do it. Arms could be over. Arms could be under. Arms could be double under. It just depends on what the soldiers would like to do to you. Does, does, does that make sense? In all the pictures, Jesus is wearing a loincloth. That also is giving him a shred of decency on the cross because our children come in. People were crucified completely naked. This would have been humiliating for Jewish people, right, who who resisted the Greek way of exercising naked. Um, you've likely seen movies that people are flogged, especially Jesus, I mean, really beaten. Have you seen The Passion of the Christ, anybody? It's really, really awful, <laughs> For a lot of reasons, Uh, um, if you've seen the movie, Jesus probably would have died about five times in the movie. Um, And you should know that the point of a cross is to kill somebody slowly, not quickly. And if you beat somebody heavily, they will die quickly. Uh, There's two ways you die from a cross. One is uh, the long, slow way, which is every time you'd like to breathe, you have to pull up so that your lungs have room to expand. Eventually, you get too tired to do that. You know all you have to do is pull up, but you can't because of fatigue and you suffocate. This could take four or five days. Uh, The other way is just simply shock. Your body is shocked by the the trauma of this, uh, this method of execution, and your heart stops. Likely, Jesus dies of shock because he dies quite quickly. Um, The Romans had a way of making sure that you didn't die from shock, which was to offer you a mild sedative. So sour wine mixed with myrrh. Jesus declines that drink. This is not a humanitarian thing. It dulls your senses enough so that you don't go into shock, so that it takes longer to die. Does this make sense? When you read that the Pharisees spat on him they weren't spitting up in the air I and mean you really are imagining face to face it's very possible that they were actually striking him with their hands. Um, at night when you go inside if people are still alive this is where animals roam animals can eat people on crosses that would include coyotes and vultures etc. This is just really quite ugly there are we found a few records of families stealing people off of crosses in the night and them ultimately being rehabilitated. So. so Stolen bodies actually happened and, and people recovered. Um, you don't have to nail someone to a cross, but you do have to tie them. You you, you can't just nail somebody or um, they won't hold. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, so there's a reference in Peter about there being nails. That would be in addition to ropes, and that is just for, for, for torment. Um <coughs> You may say, well, Mike, wouldn't that speed up shock? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I mean, the the, the nail is essentially going to close, the wound is going to close around the nail, if that sort of makes sense. That's about it. It's really, really, really terrible, right? And again, this is reserved for poor people, and the billboard says this is what happens when you mess with the empire. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's not saying... Do double duty, <laughs> he's actually saying, commit treason against a system of domination. It's an extremely political message. It's the kind of message that inspired Martin Luther King to walk to Birmingham and get sprayed with fire hoses and dogs and gas and to continue marching. Does, does that make sense? To speak out against a considerable social injustice or evil even at great personal risk. Gandhi also understood the passage that way uh, with his human rights work in South Africa, but also in India as well. Uh, I'm not keen on doing this. I just have to tell you, I think it would hurt a lot. (laughs) And I'd rather not, I (laughs) I just would rather not. So you need to know when people are really being crucified, which we have no conception of that right now, none. Um, to hear these words, we've kind of tamed them and we've separated them from what crucifixion is. Again, it's, it's not like putting yourself out there a bit, it's, it's like really putting yourself out there <laughs> with the likelihood that, that, that you'll be injured professionally, personally, etc. Does that, does that make sense? So one wonders if you're supposed to take up the cross to create division or if you're supposed to take up the cross so that there won't be. Sometimes it's a hard burden trying to stop a division from happening. (laughs) And it can be easy to become crucified, I, I suspect, figuratively, mind you. Important to let you know that Jewish people under the Roman Empire w- could kill people. They could do it by stoning them, not by crucifying. Crosses were reserved for Rome, um, just like the electric chair is, reser- is reserved for sort of the government. Uh, stoning is like lynching. You just sort of do it, and it, it happened And a well. That's sort of how it would have worked. So the Jewish authorities could have essentially lynched Jesus, and nobody would care, just be honest with you. Very similar to Alabama in the 1960s. Yeah, so you, you know, so when you read that the Jewish folks are really concerned with his blasphemy, and Pilate is really not wanting to kill him, doubtful historically. I just real doubtful. Because if they were so concerned, they could have stoned him in the night, and nobody would ca- nobody would have cared. Human life was extremely cheap. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, uh, one wonders when you get to the end if Matthew isn't apologizing for Rome a little bit, like making them look a little bit better. I'll tell you more about Pilate when we get to the end. He comes off as a real considerate guy in the gospel. Friends, he is more like Herod, <laughs> which is not. But we'll, we'll wait, we'll wait till we get there. This is a tough saying, though. I want you to hear, right? I mean, this is very tough saying. If um, Jesus were to come and say it today, I'm suspicious it would be extremely off-putting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think anybody wants to do that, right? I mean, I don't think anybody. But I sort of do think, at a certain point, we realize through she and heroes that we celebrate that that is descriptive of what often is required f- to effect real change. Again, we celebrate Martin Luther King. And listen, Rosa Parks didn't just have tired feet. Like We just realized that, hopefully. I mean, I guess you could've. But, but that action is like taking up your cross, right? And the question is, do we do it in a treasonous way against powers of evil? That is, do we represent justice? Or do we take up cross for stupid things? <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? Sometimes we like to say, well, I'm taking up the cross for a really dumb cause. Like, get off of that cross. (laughs) would be a good solution. Like, play that one down. That'll be okay. I don't know if that makes sense. Who's carrying crosses around today? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't because they didn't see they. I don't think they were sort of expecting that, if that makes sense. I, I think this is something you do intentionally. This is not like you're victimized. This is a. Pla- oh, that's po- that's that's maybe possible. That's maybe possible. But I, I think more like freedom riders is an even better one. I mean, there's extreme likelihood that you'll be harmed. Yeah, and I'm not sure that Jesus is advocating that we be foolish. You, <laughs> you know, again, I've told you before. When I was a young person and the Soviet Union existed, I remember learning in church like smuggling Bibles into Russia was like a th- good, a good and godly thing. I think it's a little crazy, you know, because I, I s- you sort, of, sort of like trying to convert people in Saudi Arabia. Like that'll get you and them killed. It, it will, and I don't think God delights in people dying. Um, but, but there is. Well, yeah, it seems to be the case, but I think the question is, what do we make, what, what are, what are, well, what, what hills are we willing to die on, and what hills are we really willing to live on? You know, I mean, that's an interesting, interesting question, I think. Human life is, I think, still very cheap sometimes, and we die on rather stupid hills, quite honestly, politically and figuratively and, and really. You you, you know, depending where you live. Maybe it seems like I've really gotten off the scripture, but but I think that's just a hard one to get our heads around. I just, I do, and, and it's hard because Jesus doesn't say it just one time. He says it again, you know. He says it to Peter after Peter rebukes him. You notice that John the Baptist doesn't know whether Jesus is the Messiah. This is helpful to know because he's like the most righteous guy, and, and he doesn't know, it means there's hope for us, right? <laughs> you know, like really good people that were around the guy, aren't sure, so that's good. Um, Jesus says something really interesting, doesn't he, that John came neither eating or drinking, and you said he's got a demon, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, here's a glutton and a drunkard, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. Whew, I don't know what that means, except I suppose we can dismiss anybody we want for any reason we choose. And we usually do if if they're inconvenient. (laughs) It's called poisoning the well, you know. It seems to be the number one way to behave in Congress. If you don't like somebody's idea, you just call them a Democrat and then you don't have to listen to them anymore. (laughs) We have other words we use than Democrat. That's interesting. (laughs) We have nastier words that we use. It can be a real nasty word in Texas, can't it? It sure can. Yeah. Like pacifist, that'd be the worst, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, s- I said the P word, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <coughs> Jesus says this other interesting thing at the end of that, though. He says, you know, come unto me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, <coughs> there, there, There is, mm, I don't know if I've heard it only in sermons or if I've read some commentary on this, You know, an ox has to pull a yoke, and I suppose there's two ways you can pull a yoke. One is like the yoke that they made at Sears that is for all oxen, and the other is the custom-made yoke that actually fits your ox, and the difference between the custom yoke is that, well, it doesn't hurt the ox, and it spreads the weight more evenly so that with a custom yoke from a skilled carpenter, you actually don't so much feel the load or it's not abrasive to carry the load as it would with the one size fits all. This is analogous to Jesus being this master carpenter who potentially made yokes. I, I, don't, I don't know that he was but, but I just sort of, sort of share that but it's interesting to think that you're called to take up the cross but don't worry that yoke is easy and the burden is light. I did hear a priest one time, in fact, at clergy conference. She's in charge of Thistle Farms. She's been a priest for about 24 years. She said this, I mean, I remembered exactly. She said, you know, uh, 24 years into the priesthood, I believe a lot less than I did when I was ordained. But the things I believe, I believe much more deeply than I ever did before, and I would die for those things. And uh, that's an interesting thought. Just kind of bringing it full circle. <coughs> Sorry for the crash course. I mean, you read it, so so. Okay, <laughs> this is tough, right? I want to tell you. I actually think Matthew is probably one of the hardest Gospels because Matthew doesn't like give you much much breaks. <laughs> you know, he's not it's like, well, take up your cross unless you're tired, and then have a beer. You know, like that'll be fine. <laughs> it's not any of that, right? It's just it's that's tough. The Lord of the Sabbath is tough, too. It seems like a neat thing, right? Like, hey, you know, God didn't make human beings for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for human beings. And Jesus does this throughout the book by healing people on the Sabbath. The disciples pick some grain on the Sabbath, right? So Jesus seems to believe that, like, when you're hungry, it's okay to eat. I mean, (laughs) the nerve of that guy. Um (coughs) This is a really interesting thought, though. I think it connects in general to, like, just because we're a sacramental church, like, like who are sacraments for? Are they for us or are they for God? My dog was just chasing her tail. Sorry, it's lovely because she's 10. Um <coughs> you know, somebody came in hungry and they wanted to eat the reserved sacrament. Well, surely I should give them a blessing in a bag instead, you know. I mean, there's more nutrition in that. Because the Preserve Sacrament not really for that, or, or is it exactly for that? I mean, this is <laughs> sort of an interesting thing to think about, right? Maybe we should put the blessings in the bag on, like, the Lord's table every Sunday. That'd be interesting to, like, consecrate them, don't you think? <laughs> Here's some extraordinary food for you. It's a blessing in multiple ways. I mean, that's a, I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I just wonder about this stuff, you know? Like, it's interesting to think about I (laughs) might. I'm really thinking about it. Yeah. (sighs) I'd get in. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's pork-free, delightfully pork-free since 1989. Um. (coughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) This is an interesting thing, though, really, about about really who needs the stuff and what it's for, right? And, And whether or not sometimes propriety gets... Propriety and etiquette are really great guides, but, but I wonder if sometimes they don't actually get in the way and become sort of idolatry. Y- y- you know, sometimes I think it's really easy to pick on folks in, in, in worship, which, which I don't think really happens here, to be honest with you. It happens in other places, you know. Um, <coughs> I recently was out and they were playing the national anthem, and my daughter was laying down. <laughs> Now, I should tell you that um, when I was about four, I was at a swim meet and they were playing the National Anthem, and I think I was like running around playing because I, dis- I was four. And I remember distinctly my dad grabbing me by my hair and pulling me because I shouldn't be running around during the National Anthem. Now, I'll tell you, I learned the lesson that day. <laughs> I have not moved during the National Anthem since I was four years old. Um, So I guess I got the right outcome. The other day when my daughter was laying down during the National Anthem, I thought, (laughs) my dad would pick her up by her hair. And then I thought for a second, and then she would learn the right outcome. (coughs) And I think this is what Jesus is trying to challenge us, is there are things greater than the National Anthem. And there are ends that we'd like but the means are really important it was an effective lesson I received <sighs> but probably the worst w- way to try to convey a relationship of respect don't you think we'll see more of that tension as we read through right? but I think that's, I think that's a little bit behind this Lord of the Sabbath business you know The Sabbath must be respected at all costs. Jesus really challenges that. Really, really challenges that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Obviously, what Jesus is trying to do is grow... This is interesting, because he doesn't want to change the letter, but I think what he wants to do is change the spirit. It's almost like Jesus is saying that the letter is there to guide us into the spirit. However, if the letter gets in the way, pick the spirit. (laughs) So that if your donkey falls in a well on the Sabbath, pull it out. And it's work to heal somebody on the Sabbath, it's work. But the whole point of the Sabbath is more life. So pick the life, even if it apparently breaks the rule. Maybe I'll tell you one other thing. And if you're reading the blog, you'll hear about this a bunch. Sorry, can't help it. Um, I don't know why I'm writing those things. But I. I, I The rule was really meant to be a container. Yeah, and and I want to give you another interesting one that came from my clergy bar exam. It's called the GOE. Uh, it's like a 21-page essay test that they take, and um, whatever. One of the questions was, a local mosque is running out of money, and they're asking if they can worship in your building. And as director, you can decide what they do on your own. And this is k- sort of a setup. I think you're supposed to say, like, talk to the vestry, build consensus, whatever. I did all that. But we, 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 we talked about this at my last church, and... Um the response was like yeah we should offer them our building you know as long as they're not like one of those splinter cell groups <laughs> which is like oh like okay so we've got to really this was the time you know right so we had to really think through that one a little bit and then was the response well they could go anywhere but not in the sanctuary because they would defile the reserve sacrament you know because like they're not christian folk and i think this sentiment raises the question I mean, if the sacraments are really about grace, can you ever defile God's grace? My grace is easy to defile because it comes with strings attached. (laughs) But but does God's? I mean, I think that's a really good question. I asked a rabbi if he would celebrate a Seder with us. And he was really offended, I would ask, because that's like a big Jewish thing to do. You know, it's like supposed to be Gentiles doing that. It's like really inappropriate. So he he said, you know, if if an imam called you and asked you to offer the Eucharist in a mosque, what would you say? (laughs) How many people are going to be there? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I... I I mean, there's an interesting point, right? Because the thing is, like, why would they want that, knowing what it represents for us? But if they know what it represents and they want it, why why wouldn't I want to give it to them? (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, And I think that speaks to this question. I think it speaks to the question. Hey, they may not want it for good reasons, but if you want really good things for the wrong reasons at the end of the day, if you get it, like didn't you get really good stuff? I mean, I think this is the kind of stuff that, I don't want to spend all night at it, okay. I think so. I think so. I'll tell you, every preacher's got one sermon. That's it. They just only have one, right? And every week you hear them trying to find it. So sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. That's my one sermon I'm trying to find. You heard it at the sermon time, too. I was just trying to find that one. <laughs> this is really disturbing I'm going to skip the tree and the fruit I'm just going to tell you that's weird because you'll know a a, a tree by its fruit so bad trees can't have good fruit Um, I mean it sounds really black or white doesn't it and it gives me hope because I feel like sometimes I do good things even though I know I've got some really bitter fruit growing on my tree And, and Matthew seems to think like that contradiction that we might be good in certain venues and not in others is like not a contradiction we should settle for, that we should try to be just really good all around. It's a nice idea. (laughs) Um, The spirit business is tough. When an unclean spirit leaves, it goes around searching, searching, and in the end it brings seven worse than itself and comes back to roost so that the end condition is worse than than the beginning. Now, if you know what that means, please do tell me. um, It's a little terrifying, isn't it? I have a guess. I have a guess, and it's, a, it's an anecdote. Um, the first pastor I, w- I worked for, and I, I didn't really work directly, this was at a really big church, he, he was a drug addict. He'd, he'd become addicted to um, over the counter, I uh, know, to prescription pain medication because he, he legitimately had kidney stone problems. And so um, his addiction had come and gone, he'd and the church basically paid for him to go to his third inpatient drug rehab. Um, this was when he was about 45. Um, so, so he did that and he came back drug free, but um, an exercise bulimic. Do you, do you know what that means? That meant if he like ate a bag of chips, he had to go run two miles to like burn it off. So he wasn't making himself well he might actually he might have been a bulimic bulimic too, but he became like an exercise fanatic, losing all kinds of weight really unhealthy. Beyond that, he was adamantly anti-gay, and he had two little kids, uh, but he was gay, and he was having trysts in his office at church and using church money to to pay for it. And church? No, it's a Methodist church, but yeah. it could it could be any church, quite honestly. Uh, yeah, and so we have a name for this in in Narcotics Anonymous and Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's called becoming cross-addicted. So you may no longer use alcohol to treat your addiction, you just use sex or something else, if that makes sense. And this was a man who was a drug addict, and he used several other drugs to deal with his addiction. So he, he, he used different means, having not dealt with his condition, and in the end, the drugs came back and it killed him at about 52 was a really, really sad story to have, to have known this family. And um, there's there's some truth to it, unfortunately. Some truth to it. There are plenty of people who give up smoking and abuse alcohol instead. And so was the trade-off... I mean, that's n- that's not even really a lateral trade. Just d- does it make sense, what I'm, what I'm saying? And it's an interesting bit, right, because uh, it's easy to talk about alcoholics, but we have lots of culturally... Accepted uh, addictions like perfectionism and workaholism, like those, those like, get you pats on the back, but come from, well, equal places of despair, right? I mean, addiction comes from uh, a place of shame and, and, um, and an effective coping, right? And, and uh, whether it's working too much or, or being a perfectionist or medicating with alcohol, right? It's really coming from a very similar condition. Um, and not dealing with the condition this is sort of a scary reality. That—that's all I can do with that saying. I really don't really know what else it might mean. Settle for the evil you know instead of the evil you don't know. It seems unlikely Jesus would have said that. But it's mind-boggling. This one. This was. Anybody else had, scratch your head on that one? <laughs> Not very long because you had more to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Here comes a real head-scratcher, too, is parables. um, Quite honestly, the parables are unique to Jesus, so really I don't think anybody else tells them. Parables aren't analogies. Analogies is when I say life is like a box of chocolates, and then I tell you why, because you'll never know what you're going to get. I mean, there's a lot of other things you could say, like there's a lot of variety, or read the map if you'd like to know what's coming. (laughs) I recommend reading, and then you will know what you're going to get. Um, Parables, though, compare... Human things, which are like earthly, and we understand them, to things that are not human, superhuman, metaphysical realities, like God's kingdom. A- and, and it's tough, right, because if you say, the, right when you say the kingdom of God, don't you immediately think, oh, like I know what kingdoms are like. There's a king and maybe a queen, and there's princes and royalty, and then there's like petty nobility, and then there's knights and, and barons, and then there's like merchants, and then there's like those peasants. (laughs) And that's pretty much how the church has worked for a long time, right? The pope is the king, the cardinals are the princes, and then there's, well, the priests, you know, we're like the knights, and then there's y'all, you know, the peasants out there to do the work of the church. (laughs) This is how we've operated for a long, long time. Because the human model of hierarchy is inherent in the word kingdom, and we just go ahead and put that on heaven. But I think it's a good question, right? Is there a hierarchy in heaven? Is the father greater than the son, who's greater than the spirit, or are they co-eternal and co-equal? Well, that's an oligarchy. That's not a kingdom. (laughs) You get the rub, right? This is inherent in language. When we use language, human language, to describe spiritual realities, in some ways it, it helps, but in other ways it limits. To Probably not. Probably not. And in some ways, you know, right, we're very pro-American government for lots of good reasons, right? But to it's amazing how little we bristle against this. You know, I mean, when in some ways, we've been very enculturated in church that kingdoms are okay when they're gods, but otherwise, that's like tyranny. You, do you know what I mean? We've sort of built some, some, some tolerance for that term. Well, well parables, and, and by the way, the word kingdom isn't even parabolic, the, 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 the parables do some odd things. They take s- seemingly normal things and compare them to God, but, but you've got to watch out or you, 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 you might miss the details. And and Jesus says he speaks in parables on purpose to confuse people. (laughs) The disciples say, why don't you just tell us the simple truth? And Jesus says, no, I'm going to speak in parables. That's because even though you hear the words, you don't listen. And even though you see, even though you look, you don't see. Otherwise, you would turn and you'd be saved. Now that's a head scratcher, (laughs) isn't it? I thought the whole point of the enterprise was that people would turn and be saved. I had a professor, and I think he's probably right. He didn't say this first part, but I think it's important. He said parables are sort of like jokes. Now, if you're not in the mood to laugh, a joke is probably not going to work on you. Unless the joke teller is a master. Do you know what I mean? And they'd have to be really masterful. But in general, if you're not in the mood, not happening. Beyond that, if you don't get the joke, there is no amount of explanation I can do that will ever make it funny. You might say, oh, I get it. But it's not, f- it's not funny. You know, you, you kind of have to g- be willing to get it, and then you have to actually get it. And I wonder if parables aren't similar. We have to be in a place for them to actually, f- to be willing for them to get us. And then we've got to know a bit about them. And I'm going to warn you, I think they're stretchers. And I think the reason that Jesus talks in difficult terms is the kingdom of God is pretty difficult because it's not like how we live. It's fundamentally different from how we live, greater than. Like God's grace is different from our grace. It's hard to get that. We all say God's grace is bigger than ours. We get that. How is it different is what we struggle with. (laughs) And can we be gracious like God is? Well, I struggle with that. Uh, Enough of this talk. Let me give you a few difficult ones. I'm going to start actually with the mustard one because, you know, it's really easy to take a surface read. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, even though it's the smallest of garden seeds. You sow it in your garden, it makes a big old bush, and the birds of the air come and sit on it. And you know, as a young boy, I learned, of course, faith starts really small and it grows into a bush. I mean, that's a valid reading of it, except that if it's in your garden, you don't want birds. (laughs) So why would you put something in your garden that's going to be a home for birds, so they can eat all the other stuff in your garden. I don't know if you've ever thought about that one. The other thing you don't want in your garden is a big bush (laughs) because it'll block the sun from all the other plants and then they won't grow. It helps to know a little bit about mustard, which most of us don't know. It's a weed. (laughs) Mustard's an invasionary plant like mint, and it will spread under the surface so it's got seeds, but the roots will come out and it'll uproot the garden plants. so much so that actually it was illegal at the time of Jesus to sow it in your garden. It could be on the fringe of the garden, but it couldn't be in the garden. Um, if you've ever done this before, if you put mint next to strawberries, the strawberry has this delightfully refreshing mint flavor to it. I'm not actually sure it's delightful. Mustard will do that too, so the flavor is also spreadable a bit. Um, So the kingdom of God is like an illegal invasionary weed that you intentionally sow so that it can turn into a bush to kill all the other plants in your garden and harvest the natural predators of your produce. Pretty good analogy, right? (laughs) You're wondering why the disciples didn't get Jesus. Because he said stuff like that. (laughs) Now, Now think through that a little bit. I mean... I can turn it down and say, right, surely there's an invasionary quality to faith that God has in mind for us. God's not interested in us having faith be a little s- portion of our lives, right? It really is supposed to integrate and invade until it all tastes like the kingdom of God. I mean, I think that's, that's really cute. That's good. My Sunday school teacher would not have argued with that. Um, I do wonder if Jesus isn't asking us to consider that the kingdom of God might be in the people and places we think are weeds. So who who are the weeds? People who are mentally ill. Oh no, God's not in them. They are sick. I mean I wonder if this isn't actually a real strong challenge to that. And then there's the birds, right? There's the birds and that we would be called to give nourishment to our natural enemies. Does that sound like something Jesus would say? Probably. (laughs) I don't like it, which is why it's probably something he would say. (laughs) You know what I mean? There becomes this criterion in Bible study, is that you pick the most offensive read possible, and that's probably what Jesus intended. (laughs) The reason I say that is, he offended everybody who listened to him. You know, and so some of these are really seemingly innocuous, like the pearl of great price. It's like a pearl that a merchant who's an expert looks and he sees and he says, I've got to have this pearl. You know, it's fantastic. And he sells everything he has to buy the pearl. Everything he has. The language is very clear. He sells the shirt off his back. He might not even be wearing any underwear, but he's got that pearl. And what will he eat? He could eat the pearl, it will come back to him, Um, but it will not be (laughs) nourishing. He could sell that pearl, but he can't sell that pearl. He's looked his whole life for it. It's, It's the most beautiful thing in his world, and it's practically worthless. That's not a real compelling sermon, you know? but but but, but it, it probably is corrective to a lot of sermons that i hear on tv that says god wants to make you rich give money to the church and god will reward you financially or faith is not something we have because it's personally advantageous to us faith is not something we do to grow our resources faith is something we we do because well, we trust God, frankly, and it brings more joy, which is often really impractical. Joy, joy is really impractical. <laughs> that's a hard read, though. You know, that's a hard read. The weeds in the wheat is a hard one, you know, because we already talked about this. You know, the, uh, the master wakes up, and there's weeds in the wheat, and where that weeds come from? And, and Jesus says, well, you know, the enemy sowed that, and people say, let's yank the weeds out. And, and, and the master says, no, if you do that, you'll uproot some of the wheat, too. I think I'd take the, that risk. <laughs> I think I'd take the risk for some of the, whe- the, the, the wheat in my life to be uprooted if the weeds would just come out. What's interesting is God's really risk-averse in losing life. I mean, that seems to be the case. God's not willing to lose any wheat. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? Then there's the parable of the sower, which is the easiest one after all, right? I mean, Jesus even says what it means. He tells you what it means, except he didn't (laughs) explain a few things. Like, why does that guy waste seed? I mean, this is like something a child would do, throw seed on the road. <laughs> y- the birds are going to eat it, and we're looking to grow some produce here, so just put it in the good soil, right? Why did not the sower, like, cultivate the soil? That, that seems like a good idea in farming, <laughs> right? Like, plow that rocky field, and then it would be okay. I mean, is the sower incompetent, or does he just have so many seeds he doesn't care? Who is the sower anyway? Do you think it's God or is it supposed to be us? He didn't ever say that. Jesus doesn't ever tell us. He didn't tell us that, it, that if you're rocky soil, can you ever change? <laughs> and he certainly doesn't tell us something that I think is probably true that we're probably multiple, we have multiple kinds of soil in um, different areas of our lives, you know? There are places where I am extremely rocky. There are very few places I'm good, I want you to know, based on this criterion. The good criterion, and I want to be good soil, don't you? I mean, I'm a priest, i got a church, I'm in Bible study, this is really good. Except <laughs> except the good soil multiplies 30, 60, 100 fold. Now in a good year, my 403B has a 10% return. I think that's really good. As an investment banker, that's good. Uh, 30 fold, sorry, that's a 3,000% return, isn't it? I don't have any bitcoins. S- uh, Sixtyfold, that's that's a that's a is that a six thousand that's a sixty thousand percent return, isn't it? A hundred thousand percent return if I'm good so I don't have any area of my life that's like that. You know, where I've returned something a hundredfold. You know, when we were young folks, we sort of thought if you get 30 people saved your good soil. Because of that, you know, thirty people saved. Well that's big responsibility, isn't it? You notice that the point of the good of the good seed is that it feeds more people. The goal is that like uh, you nourish other people. Well that's probably a good that's probably a good thought. But but again, this is even though Jesus explains this one, the explanation is not exactly clear to me. I just, w- just want to say that. Yes, ma'am. So that the seed never goes wasted. That's an interesting idea. You'll read that in my blog. And I, I think you will. And I think, y- y- I think um, you said it better than I did. But I think um, you could also say that one way to wear down rocky soil is by lots of plants trying to grow and sending roots to break them through. And if you've got enough seeds to spare, that is one way to till soil. If you've got a lot of time and a lot of seeds, you can just keep sowing until the roots break the rocks. What does that mean? We're supposed to be patient? (laughs) See, this is what's interesting about parables. They could make one simple point, or they could invite a really strong, really strong and frankly often vexing conversation about who's who and who does what and how how do we do it. That could lead us, I think, to some really interesting ideas, right? Does God have enough resources that God is perfectly happy to risk them even in foolish ventures? Seems like I don't have resources like that. Although, could I be unafraid of wasting grace? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think it's fair. And I want to let you off the hook a little bit because Jesus is essentially talking to peasants. So I'm pretty sure his prime thinking is not financial resources. I think he's probably mostly thinking human resources, which are the most valuable ones that we have, ultimately, and the ones that were often the slowest to invest in other people, especially when we deem them bad investments. vexing um so is the yeast this sounds silly right because yeast is really small and it grows things big faith is like that maybe but yeast is also like ritually impure and so are women so so the kingdom of god is like a dirty woman who put some dirty yeast in some dough and mixed it up (laughs) it's just what (laughs) i i mean it's this is almost like off-color stand-up that jesus is telling you know um Think that's really f- I think that's really, really fair, and those are, those are good reminders. And I think the other thing that's important is there's not one right interpretation of Scripture, even though there certainly are wrong ones. I think you sort of know it's wrong if it takes life from people. <laughs> that's kind of my criterion, right? However, there are many ways to read this that could give life to people. I think it's not bad to say, hey, you know, Things start small and they can grow. I didn't think that's a bad interpretation. I I think it ignores a lot of the other fact pattern, you you know. So I think there are additional ones we could mine out of there that could be more life-giving, you know. I think the same with yeast. But I do think it's interesting to think about God's purposes aren't always accomplished with, with like, quote-unquote, clean hands. (laughs) Ordinary people... Do God's work with their ordinary hands. I mean, that's just sort of interesting to think about. And and I have this weird image. uh, Sorry, I read about this in the blog too. I just, I guess, this has been on my mind. But (coughs) we used to on Monday Thursday in San Diego have a foot washing where the bishop would wash. And the bishops always wanted to do this because they got pictures, you know. And and, um, they would wash these homeless people's feet and give them new shoes. And and they would wear like their cassock and I thought, you know how amazing it would be if they wore their cope and miter to wash people's nasty, homeless feet? They wore the expensive fancy garments of the church and sullied them to give somebody else dignity. I mean, that would be a really a picture, wouldn't it? The bishops they wore gloves, which was like the worst part. <laughs> was the worst it was the worst part. Anyway. I wonder about I wonder about hand, sullying our hands, and our sacraments to give life to other people. I just I do, I do wonder about that. Hey, cool that Jesus feeds five thousand people. That's neat, right? And uh, notice that even limited resources uh, can accomplish a lot more than we thought in God's hands. That's that's an interesting bit. And notice that the boy has very small, and is willing to offer his, his sort of small thing. Hard to know what goes on in the story. There's some people that say the generosity of the boy inspires other people to share their lunches. I don't know. The story is clearly saying, though, that when we, we offer, God is able, essentially, to feed the world if, if we'll trust God with our, with our gifts. That's, I think that's, that's a pretty fair, pretty fair read. You notice that Jesus walks on water, which is, which is like this important cipher that he's walking on top of evil and chaos. He's not being overwhelmed by it. So remember, water is always this biblical code word. And the disciples are in their boat, terrified. They're in the vessel of safety, just barely floating. And <coughs> they say he's a ghost, and Jesus says, hey, you come out on the water with me. And in fact, Peter says, let me get out there. And Jesus says, great. Notice that... Jesus doesn't get into the boat with the disciples. He calls them to get out of their boat. Interesting image that disciples are called out of the boat into places that are chaotic and they're called to walk on top of it. (laughs) That's interesting. Um, Peter sees that he's walking on top of evil and chaos and he gets really terrified as anybody else would and he sinks. And Jesus says, why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you trust? Not why did you doubt, why, did, why didn't you trust me more than you doubt? That's, a, that's an interesting reproof. I probably would not have got of the boat. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> There's the tradition of the elders, right, that Jesus challenges. It's not what comes in your body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of it. Interesting, really interesting thought. What comes out of it? Really easy to pick on (sighs) rhetoric that we use in public, like the names we call each other. Sorry to beat that horse, but I think it it sort of also reflects uh, sort of the, the deeds and concerns, the things we think about before we go to sleep at night. Those are the things that tell us where our heart is and ultimately defile us or improve us hard to fall asleep thinking about righteous stuff it's a lot easier to think about what i'm going to buy at the grocery tomorrow you know because i can do that in my sleep so it makes me go to sleep (laughs) thinking about like solving the world's problems that keeps me up at night so i don't know the solution i usually i'm I'm going to think about shopping tonight i can tell you There's this Canaanite woman, you know, who comes to Jesus. In the morning group, I'm afraid I really upset them this morning. And remember, there's no one right way to do this, and you may not like this. Um, This is a really upsetting story for me because this is a woman, and Jesus refers to her as a feminine dog. Now, we have a word that means that in English that we're all familiar with. It's extremely pejorative, especially when a man uses it toward a woman much more I think so than when a woman uses it towards a woman because of the history of inequality and in gender power relationships. Does that make sense? So he says we do not give children's food to female dogs and, and she says yes, but even female dogs get crumbs from the children's table and <coughs> Jesus sort of stops and says you have great faith and your request is granted. There are a few ways to read the story. One is that Jesus is testing her faith, and I mean really testing her faith because he calls her an epithet that I'm not really comfortable (laughs) saying, you know, (laughs) not just in church in general. I've grown to be very uncomfortable with this particular word. So does God do that to test our faith? I mean, particularly if God already knows whether we have faith or not, you know. We could say the test is for the woman, but that just seems cruel, doesn't it? Another way to read the story, it comes from um, John Wesley, who says that um, ignorance isn't sinful unless we are willfully ignorant. And that's an interesting thing to think about, that Jesus had a cultural upbringing much like ours, and that there are words we learn, and we have to unlearn later in life, and that this is one of those moments maybe where Jesus is so... Divinely human. He says something he heard growing up, and he learns not to say it again. <laughs> that's, that's a very uh, non traditional read. I want to suggest to you that my dad, who's a Vietnam veteran, had really fantastic, magnanimous things to say about racial equality, <laughs> but I often caught him using the N-word. Because when he grew up, that was what you used. And... For him to be able to say other things about racial equality, this is very um, confusing. Like, Dad, what side of this issue are you on? And of course, he learned those words from his dad. And I learned that word from my dad. I've decided not to use it. My dad has yet to make that decision. It's an interesting thing to think through, though, right? Interesting thing to think through. Did Jesus have to learn stuff? I hope so. It'd be more hope for me, you know. Jesus is like us in every way without sin. So it's interesting to think is does sin mean never made a mistake, or or does sin mean failure to learn from our mistakes? Well, as a parent, we usually use the second definition, don't we? It's only wrong if you don't learn from it. I mean Something like that? You ever told your kids something like that? Gosh, we want our kids to believe it. I'm just afraid we don't actually believe that's true when we say it. Interesting way to think about the story. Does God use language like that? I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting one. The Apostle Paul does, you should know. He uses profanity all over the place. Not in your translation, because the interpreters don't want you to read that. <laughs> Temple tax, they asked, should we pay the temple tax? And the temple tax is an egregious sum that you have to pay either once in your life or annually to pay for Herod's grandiose temple. So you should know that Herod turned a hut into the eighth wonder of the world, literally. And you know, that also happened in Rome uh, with the construction of not only the Sistine Chapel, but St. Peter's Basilica, it was a hut. And after selling indulgences and plundering, well, the Colosseum and other monuments, it was rather grandiose. Has anybody seen it? St. Peter's? It's quite grandiose, right? Although, when you know the story behind it, it's sort of like, oh, uh, uh, too bad they built it that way. Too bad they, they built it by selling indulgences and by, you know, deconstructing the Colosseum. <coughs> I wonder if Jesus' criticism of the temple tax isn't similar. You've, you've built a beautiful thing with inequity, and injustice, and ugliness. And um, can you have beautiful outcomes when the means, when the means are ugly? I think that's a really interesting, interesting question. Goes back to that hair-pulling incident, right, that I mentioned. (laughs) Jesus shows a lot of concern for children, which is very, um, well, surprising, because children were not valued in the ancient world. First of all, they didn't live very long in general. They had less than a 50% rate of making it to the age of 13. Um, <coughs> beyond that, they couldn't own property, and they were weak. Uh, so if your primary job is to work a, f- a, a, a field as a sharecropper, a child is not a good worker until they're... Pfft. Well, I don't know about my 17-year-old, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> maybe when he's 20. You, 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 you get how this goes, right? And we have a love and care of children now that this didn't happen back then. For, so for Jesus... To touch and bless children is very non-characteristic. Children were to be not even seen, let alone heard, right? They, they just were nuisances you put up with until they were grown. Matthew is the only uh, gospel that uses the word church, um, which sort of helps date it a little bit later than Mark. The word is ecclesia, and it means gathering, and he talks about how to handle disagreements in church. Do you notice that no church I've ever been a part of does this? (laughs) If you have a problem with somebody in the church, you should tell everybody else in the church. That is how we normally do it. (laughs) We could also post it on Facebook or tell people in the coffee shop to make sure they never want to go to church with us either. Now, Jesus says, you go (laughs) to the person with whom you have a problem. (laughs) What's the percentage of the times this happens? Seven? Eight? We're still struggling with this. We just struggle with this, you know? Sometimes we say, oh, they won't listen, which is why Jesus says, if they don't, that's why you bring a mediator with you. Not someone to back you up, someone to mediate. Bring two people if you want, so you can each have somebody mediating. And if then that doesn't work, the other person in the disagreement is so valuable, do it in the congregation, which is why we have the peace in church. Everybody's there so you can mediate disputes. Now, I don't know what that would be like if we tried it. (laughs) Because church is already, you know, more than an hour sometimes, and that's too long. So if people actually did reconciliation, who knows long how it would take. But that is why the peace is in the liturgy. It's not really just to say hello. (laughs) <laughs> it's you're supposed to iron this stuff out please do think through this though think through this and why is it that we go go to directly to people with our problems are we afraid that they won't listen maybe right maybe okay. yeah yeah, it's not always well-received, you know. (laughs) This is a hard one, you know. This is a real hard one. How many of you have been in a church that was, like, toxic because, frankly, this didn't happen? So many of us have done it, right? Many of us have done it. This is like parking lot conversations, which we all have. It's great to talk to each other in the parking lot. It just depends what we talk about. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's so interesting. Well, anyway, that's, that's what Jesus says. <coughs> and then he says something about it's harder for... Uh, I- it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, who can be saved? Because their understanding is people are rich because they're good. God has rewarded them with wealth, like the TV gospel that you see. So if it's hard for them, then poor people are screwed. <laughs> this is their understanding, right? And and Peter says, well, Jesus, we left everything we had, so we weren't rich, but, but we left everything. Which shows he doesn't get it at all. I <laughs> just want to point out. You could take that literally, and then I think we've ceased to take the Bible seriously, right? If anything, Jesus is probably trying to subvert a cultural stereotype that ascribes that God's blessing to rich people and God's curse to poor people, and the world is just not that linear, I don't think. Please. Please. It could. Keep in mind, most people live hand-to-mouth. So if you've got excess, you kind of are rich. Yeah, yeah. He includes those people. But I think if you're poor, rich people belong to the middle class, too. And sometimes I think it's very tempting to think, like, I got my good job because I deserve that. I'm a good person. And, and it's true that many of us work for our position, but, you know, we did get privileges we didn't deserve, like being born in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, right, And having parents that valued education or having connections, you, you know. I mean, those, those are things we didn't, we, all of us are white, that's important to say, right, all of us are, uh, and we didn't, like, deserve that. Or the privilege that it comes with it, you know. Um, I think Jesus is trying to say, like, you—you y- weren't born white because you're good people, because you didn't do any good before you were born. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that makes—that makes any sense. You know, yeah. A <coughs> little bit tough though, because I think nationally we're we're on this real confusing piece about 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 racial uh, relationships, actually. This is what we did for like four hours at diocesan council. I'm real confused about what we were supposed to do with it, but, uh, but I do see it being uh, like, a, like a problem, uh, uh, like we're talking about nationally. Um, just really, <laughs> really confusing, and I, I think Jesus probably would like to subvert that for us again here. The vineyard workers, this is a great story about, you know, God makes everybody equal, which is a great story unless you're the one who worked all day. <laughs> Right, <laughs> so, so, like on this one day, it's cute, but tomorrow, are you gonna go work for that guy again at seven in the morning? or Are you gonna wait till six, and it's time to sweep up? You know, this is where those parables they break down a bit. You know, and what's interesting is that the the, the foreman makes a show of it. He, he's not content just to be generous. He wants his generosity to be shown to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. So it's neat and it's tough, you know? And then it's the interesting thing, right? That the people who have worked all day say, you have made the people who did no work equal to us. That's their objection. I, I, I think it's a very reasonable objection, right? Because we show value with, with money. And maybe the story is really trying to, to question how we assign worth to one another. We might read the story as a story about accountability when really the story is about worthiness. And those are two very different things. Th- you know, the Constitution believes in worthiness because you're presumed innocent, you're presumed innocent, and you're given a trial, even if the evidence is clear cut. You know, the Constitution presumes worthiness of people to have these things. This is sort of built into our our, our, our legal code. There is accountability, but there's also worthiness and assumption of innocence, right? I mean, that's, these are interesting legal principles. But a baffling story. I mean, if you really get into the details, the story is bothersome. (laughs) Because I can tell you, I've been working all day, you know? And it's hot. I've had years of working in the heat. And for people to convert on their deathbed and be made equal with me, that just is unfair. Yeah, I did, I did get another interpretation that was quite I- different from f- when I was in college. I had this teacher who sort of retold the parable, like in Georgia, and it's like the day before a freeze and all the peaches are on the tree. And of course, you know, if the freeze happens, the peaches are lost, right? So the regular workers go picking and the owner realizes they're not going to get all the fruit. So the owner goes to Home Depot and gets a truckload of people to help pick and two hours later realizes they'll lose some if he doesn't get more. So, so the owner can't stand losing any of the harvest, and the story is really not about the workers, it's about the harvest. And that's an interesting thing to change the perspective. But again, Jesus never says, God is the vineyard owner. <laughs> we just usually assume that because the vineyard owner has the most power. But God could be in the grapes. I mean, <laughs> you know I mean? There's no reason, you, you know what I mean? Because if the value is not assigned. It could be anything. Um, notice that John, James and John's mom really don't get Jesus either because they say in your new kingdom, can they sit on your right and your left? Can they be the p- the crown prince and the, the other prince? Can they be priests and everybody else will be, you know, church (laughs) peasantry, hierarchy in heaven. And Jesus says, hey, if you really want to sit in my right and my left, you'll go to jail with me unjustly. Again, that's a really tough thing to hear. (laughs) I'm less interested in that position of privilege. All of a sudden, I don't (laughs) don't know about you. (laughs) Jesus, I'll visit you when you're in. No, I may not do that either. I mean, that's where this becomes tough to read, you know. I don't want to go with you, but I'll visit or I'll write a letter to you while you're in jail. I mean, this, this starts to become real revealing about how, how, how we actually function. On Palm Sunday, did you notice that Jesus comes in riding a donkey and its colt at the same time? That's ludicrous. Matthew has misunderstood the Hebrew scripture, which says in Zechariah, we read it, riding in on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember, that's parallelism in Hebrew. It's not telling you separate ideas, it's a repetition of ideas. So when Matthew reads it, he says on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Jesus rides on a donkey and the colt. But all donkeys are foals of donkeys. Does (laughs) Does that make sense? That's where they come from, other donkeys. So the Zechariah passage is really talking about one animal and Matthew being Greek, and not knowing Hebrew parallelism thinks it's two. And so you could imagine Jesus standing on the spines of two donkeys, but that's like what they did at Wekiwachi Springs on water skis when I was a kid. And unlikely Jesus actually did that because the road is really hilly, Terry will tell you. The Mount of Olives is re- it's really steep. I mean, this, this would be quite a trick. The donkey is a symbol of peace, remember, because they didn't know how to ride horses. And a donkey is not a war animal. It's slow and contrary. So Jesus coming into the city is sort of like saying the city has already been taken. Of course, it hasn't because Rome owns it. And the other thing that's interesting, if you read that book the last week, uh, this this past year in Lent, there was another procession on Palm Sunday. It was sort of like the one that the Nazis did where all the troops goose step in, and Pilate was in that one. Because Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea Maritima. And for Passover week, he came in with lots of troops, essentially goose-stepping in all their bronze and glitter to show people, like, oh, my God, look at the army. We better not do anything. Pilate had a display of imperial power, and Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. (laughs) It's sort of like this counter-procession. That's interesting, I think. It's really, really interesting. This is a tough one. There's a a guy with two sons and says, go work in a vineyard. And the first one says, no, and does it. And the second one says, yes, and doesn't. My son says, no, and doesn't do it either. Right? So there should be a a third one. And the question is, which one does the will of the father? And of course, the answer is right. The one who does the stuff, even if they didn't have the right intention. See, as a little boy, I was told if you did the right thing for the wrong reason, it didn't count. But I think that subverts that (laughs) parable. I think when you do the right thing for any reason, the right thing just got done. Which is good. Right things are good. Would you get more of a reward if you did it for a better reason? I mean, maybe, but from whom? I mean, the point is the harvest, not the workers. The wicked tenants parable, right? Those are the people who, who decide to keep the produce. That seems to be that the Jewish leaders take that as a criticism of them for good reason, right? <laughs> Particularly when you talk about, like, son being killed. We read that as Jesus. Uh, Jesus could have been predicting his own death, but, but I don't know that he necessarily was. Uh, I mean, clearly this is a parable against forgetting that, like, this is all about God and not about, like, the church's stuff. That's a good story, right? That we're supposed to make wine out of God's grace instead of bottle it up. (laughs) Um, I'm going really fast. And And I'm worried I'm just rushing through. Am I missing things that are interesting for you guys? Okay, I, I have to be selective because we're not going to finish here. We're not going to. That's okay. The greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Of course, we know it's it's the Shema. If you're Jewish, you say this all the time, and it's written on a little scroll that's outside your home in a thing called a mezuzah. And when you have your bar mitzvah, it's written in a scroll that you wear on your head that's called the phylactery. You don't usually wear that stuff around, uh, but, but you... But you um do on your bar mitzvah or on a prayer day. You might wrap it around your arms, too. That's called tefillin. Um, of course, we know that the, the other one is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is out of Leviticus. But it is a really good thing to think about. Is it possible that you can only love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? I think it's pretty good psychology. I sort of grew up in church life. You're not supposed to like yourself. You're supposed to like other people. But I do sort of think that if you don't have an appreciation for the gifts that God has given you, when you see other people and their gifts, it's kind of hard not to be jealous because you don't like what you have. You just want what everybody else has. It seems like this is pretty insightful, actually. And... Maybe Jesus is saying that if you don't love yourself, you can't love God either. And that's how the two commandments are just like each other. This is one of those tough bits that you can really push on. And I may sound like I'm getting off key. You know, a lot of times my mom and dad did things for me. They did them to be a good example. Do you ever do things for your kids to to set the right example? We do this as parents. The catch point too, right, is that if we're not comfortable with, I'm just going to pick on folks a little bit. If we're not comfortable with our body and we tell our kids, you should be comfortable with your body, what do you think they're actually going to learn? What we say or what we do? This is why I hate living sometimes (laughs) because I know exactly what's right to say, which means like, oh, geez, if I want my kids to learn their body, I guess I'll just have to Show them that I love my body. Which means you don't really love your body, so they won't learn that way either. The only way you can teach children to love their bodies is if you decide your body is worth loving by you. Which is like the hardest decision for us to make. (laughs) When we do something to show an example, we're actually setting the wrong example. (laughs) When we do something because it's right and because we enjoy it and because God's in it, Well, then it's an example. (laughs) So I guess this could be as hard or as easy as we'd like to consider it, you know? The resurrection, when the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they say, Oh, teacher, listen, there was this lady and she got married and... um, the guy didn't have a baby, so the brother married her to have a baby. Like we talked about this way back in Levirate marriage, and it happened seven times. At the end, whose wife is she? This is a story in the Apocrypha, It's in the book called Tobit, where this woman keeps getting married, and the demon kills her on her wedding night. I t- sort of told you about it two weeks ago. Um, it's a weird story, you know, and and of course. I- it's interesting, because what the Sadducees are really saying is, Jesus, since women belong to men, at the end, whose property is she? <laughs> and Jesus says something quite interesting, that if you take literally, you might miss. At the end, people aren't married or given in marriage. That could be really bad news for married couples, right? Or, or it could be good news. If you're thinking, look, 50 years on earth, I'm not spending eternity with you. <laughs> that could be good news. Um <coughs> There, there is so I think this deeper argument that the Sadducees are wrong because they're asking, who owns her? And Jesus says, listen, in 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 sort of the life God imagines, you don't own each other. Besides, all this thinking about about um, resurrection is is flawed because you know God says. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am. So don't you see, God is God not of the dead, but of the living. That's an interesting thing to think about, that people are never dead in God. People live on in God. Maybe that also means the stuff that we do, Allah Ash Wednesday, lives on or it, or it doesn't, you know, depending on what's done. So it's just sort of an interesting, interesting bit. I don't actually know if you're married to somebody in heaven or not, but I don't I don't think Jesus is talking about that question the way we would phrase it. I, I think he's talking about that God's reality is not hierarchical like ours is. Pharisees and Sadducees are whitewashed tombs. You know the reason you whitewash a tomb so that you don't accidentally step on one? Because <laughs> you defile yourself. So they're like, Hey, warning, don't define <laughs> this is sort of this interesting thing, right? That that they're supposed to be guiding you and they're full of well tombs and impurity and they're blind guides and this is just funny now you're not going to laugh right but they but they strain out on that but they swallow a camel I mean please don't take that literally that would just be crazy you know obviously that's hyperbole that the pharisees are concerned with just the tiniest little infractions about when to genuflect in church and they forgot to practice (coughs) righteousness The sheep and the goats is a tough one, can I tell you, because it doesn't say anything about their faith. At the end, everyone gets separated. Sheep on one side and goats on the other. By the way, goats aren't bad. In fact, if you, if you want to milk and meat, goats are superior to sheep because a goat will have two kids a year and a, a ewe will only have one lamb a year. So you, you can grow your goat population much faster than your sheep population, which means you can eat more goats and th- they milk the same the Same amount of milk from goats. Goats actually can eat things sheep can't. So goats can eat grass and they can eat shrubs. Sheep can only eat grass. Uh, and they're sturdier animals too. So sometimes you think, oh, goats are bad, they're evil. Uh, Jesus is really saying, you look at a sheep and you look at a goat and they don't like look exactly. like each other. <laughs> if you think all cattle look alike, it's because you just had not been to farm lately, right? Mm. So, so it's going to be real easy to separate people just like it's easy to separate sheep from goats. The sheep are the ones who are righteous, and the goats aren't. Now notice, the sheep aren't the ones who believe in Jesus. The sheep are the ones who visit sick people and visit prisoners. The goats are the people who don't. I grew up that the sheep are the people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and the goats aren't. (laughs) But it isn't what Jesus says. The sheep are really confused because they say, well, well, Jesus, we didn't ever visit you in prison. And Jesus says, whoever, you know... (laughs) Whoever you visited, you actually were visiting me. Th- this is C.S. Lewis does this in the book, uh, The Last Battle, if you ever read these, The Chronicles of Narnia. There's Aslan, who's Jesus, the lion, right? And then there's this other bad god called Taz. And, and at the end of the book, the one of the priests of Taz comes into Aslan's country, and Aslan says, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. And Taz says, I didn't worship you. <laughs> and Aslan says, oh, you did. All that time all that time you were doing those things for other people, you were doing them for me. It's sort of a really hopeful, hopeful twist, you know, that comes right out of the Bible. So this is an interesting thing that what matters may not be the cognitive boxes we check, but the investments we make in other people's lives. Really interesting thing. Messiah means anointed one, Christ. And a Messiah is anointed with oil. So John the Baptist doesn't anoint Jesus, it's this woman at Bethany. So Jesus isn't anointed by Samuel the prophet, he's anointed by a woman who should not be touching a man in public and he's anointed not even with regular oil with but with nard. I should have brought it. I have some nard in my office. It's really strong, fragrant perfume and and it was really expensive. A- and Mark we will get more detail actually than Matthew gives. And Mark the woman's very sinful and the nard is worth like $100,000. Matthew just says she anoints him. So this is when he becomes the Messiah. It's right before uh, he's crucified. The talents, I can't skip that one. You know, a talent is like, I'm trying to remember how much that is, 66 pounds of gold. So Jesus, uh, this says the kingdom of heaven is like a, like a guy who was gonna go on out of town, so he called his slaves, his slaves, not his CFO. <laughs> and to one of them, he gave five times 66 pounds. He gave 330 pounds of gold to a slave, and then he gave two, so that's 132 pounds of gold, and then to the other slave, he gave 66 pounds of gold. And you might be saying, Jeez, that poor guy, he only got one. He got 66 pounds of gold, friends. You know, this is like what, like $5 million? Like, why are you giving $5 million to a slave and expecting him to get a return? So you know the story very well, right? The guy with five gets 10. The guy with two gets four. The guy with one buries it, which is actually like ancient banking. It's very safe. (laughs) There's no FDIC, you, you know. Um, people would see you hauling your 66 pounds of gold on your cart to the marketplace and would rob you blind, right? Uh, so, so he does a safe thing. He buries it and returns it. And, and he says, Master, I know you were a hard man. You were always reaping where you did not sow and expecting where you did not work. So here's your money back. And the master says, oh, you thought I was a hard man. You thought I expected a return. And you didn't try to get one? (laughs) So take the money away from this one and throw this one outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, uh, you know, one wonders whether this servant hasn't already been living in a world that's full of weeping and gnashing and teeth already. He's absolutely petrified by his master, so petrified that he can't do anything. And one wonders if this is descriptive, like if you don't use your talents, what a convenient word, like your ability to sing and shoot rockets you know, into Mars. If you don't do that <laughs> for God's sake, then God will throw you into hell. That's that's the read I got as a kid. Or if this isn't describing, frankly, how risk-averse we often are and don't need to be. I really wish the story said, the guy with one talent invested, invested it and made a bad choice and lost it all, and the master said, thanks for trying. You know, like, that would be kind of a cool story. Um... But we don't get that story. We get this one. So we don't know what would happen if he lost it all. But what we do know is he's chastised for not trying. That's what we know. And it's really hard, actually, um, because, you know, if you know people with severe PTSD or you know people who are shame-prone, fear of consequences actually is not a motivator. It's a paralyzer. It, it brings out feelings of worthlessness, and when you feel worthless, you can't make a risky decision. You can only make a destructive decision. I don't know if this makes sense. You kinda have to know people who suffer from this chronically to get it, I, I think. Have you ever known bad con- consequences are gonna happen if you didn't do something and you didn't do it anyway? Yeah, you know, I just, I think, and this is maybe helpful to say, you know, there's a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is when you made a bad decision, and you'll try not to make it next time. Shame is when there's something wrong with you. Like, guilt is when you told a lie. Shame is when you're a liar. So if you have zero platform of self-worth, and somebody says, you're failing all your classes, if you don't If you don't start passing, I'm going to throw you out of the house. That might be a strong motivator for for us in the room. And we'd say, like, oh, my gosh, that's such a bad consequence. I'll do something about it. But (laughs) but there are certain folks who, hearing that there are these awful consequences, turn them into self-fulfilling prophecies because their platform of self-worth is already so low. So what they hear is, oh, you're going to throw me out of the house because I'm going to keep failing. Maybe I'm not making sense. I know some special people (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Maybe you don't know these people. Um, But I do know folks that are utterly paralyzed, at least in certain situations, even when the consequences are really high. They can't seem to motivate themselves. And quite honestly, it's because they're... I I don't know why. I shouldn't say I know why. But I think it has to do with this shame-prone um, inability, inability to do the thing. So instead of saying, I'll suck it up and work hard, it's I may as well quit now, because I can't, I can't succeed. Mm-hmm, yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day who, who told me, I could try, but I would probably fail. And if I tried and failed, then I would know I was utterly useless. As of now, I haven't tried, so I'm not sure I'm as useless as I think I am. Have you heard that before? That's a sad thing to hear. That seems to be what's going on in the parable. <laughs> that That's a paralyzing way to live and interact with the world. Sort of like living in hell, right? So again, you wonder if the person doesn't end up in the place he's already been the whole time. And the question is, are god's punishments are extreme or or do we not often misunderstand what god wants us to do going back to the seeds does god have plenty of seeds and if we if we waste grace that's just fine (laughs) i know what you say mike you can never waste grace i think we probably can waste grace you know i think (laughs) i think we can waste it Uh, look we're out of time sorry um that was a weird one to end on. Maybe I should end on something even like more positive. I don't know. <sighs> yeah, I'll tell you one more. Cause this is the only one where pilot. Well, you know, you hear this great thing. Pilot always releases somebody to the crowd. He pilot never released somebody to the crowd. If somebody's an insurrectionist, you're not gonna let them go. I mean, you just don't do that. You know, you you don't let Che Guevara out. You don't let Lenin out. You send him to Russia. You know, <laughs> I mean this is just what you do. So, so he wasn't a nice guy. He killed lots of people. He was really awful. And the people say, Who you want me to leave? You want me to release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? And they say, Give us Barabbas, which means son of the father. Son of the father. So they pick the wrong son of the father. That's I mean, did Pilate really do it? I don't know. Most likely not. The story is really trying to tell you. Who we pick. We pick violent people instead of good ones. We pick effective people instead of righteous ones. And we'd probably do it again. Makes you think really hard about who we elect as our representatives. (laughs) Righteous ones or effective ones. You know, I mean, really. Okay. um, so we didn't finish, that's fine. Next week though, we'll be right back on number 20 and we'll read Mark and if we catch up to Matthew, we do. Is that okay? <laughs> I wish we had more time to spend on this and, I, and I'm sorry for over-talking and, and also for apologizing consistently about over-talking. you think I'd just talk less. <laughs> um, okay, thanks for being here though. Number 20, we're on number 20.